0: On this terrific episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog magazine in issues 39 and 40 from 1980.
1: Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss Bijo Trimble's commentary about women in fandom.
0: Captain Foley joins in to reminisce about the Star Trek mail order items that were available in the 1980 merchandise guide.
1: Dan Shaheen and Larry Young reflect on the career of Fred Freiberger.
0: Joe Cepeda and Rob Lopez discuss what Gene Roddenberry is up to in 1980.
1: Plus, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, Nova, the Star Trek Maps and Technical Manual, and more on this episode of
0: Star Trek.
1: Greetings and felicitations.
0: Hip hip, hoorah, tally ho.
1: Hey, baby doll. Hey, pud. I'm Nayar.
0: And I'm Kavora.
1: If this is your first time listening to us, welcome.
0: We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication.
1: On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago
0: but we leave the non trek related content to our other podcast, Log.
1: Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of StarLog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org.
0: If you would like to comment on the subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode.
1: Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews.
0: Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions.
1: So we are leaving Paris, jumping on the train, and heading to the United Kingdom to attend the London Film and Comic-Con. Those dates are July 8th through July 10th at Olympia in London. Quite a few Star Trek guests there that we're going to be happy to meet in a different country. What are your thoughts on this, baby doll?
0: I'm really excited about it. Uh, We get to go to our first con outside the U.S.
1: I think it's going to be interesting because we've gone to so many conventions that there's a point where some of the celebrities actually... Like they just shake their head at us and say, "Wow, you're here. (laughs) We just saw you two weeks ago somewhere else." So it'll be interesting to see some of them how they respond to us being in a different country.
0: Uh, Yeah, seeing them with with different fans and different audiences, and see how it goes. And of course, we still might even meet some some uh, run into some friends we already know, which would be cool.
1: Captain Rios, we've never seen him before.
0: Yeah, uh, that'll be neat too. I wish they were having more people from the, from the new Star Trek shows, but yeah, they, they are having him, which is great, and Jerry Ryan from Picard and Voyager.
1: Definitely look forward to meeting up with many of our listeners, because we have quite a few from the UK at this convention. And then, Labor Day weekend, the grandest of them all. Dragon time. The Dragon Con Trek Track is a convention within a convention. We never get tired of the Trek Track because it's always evolving, always just getting more Trekified than ever before. Especially the room. I mean, our friend Joe Campbell, one of the track directors of the Trek Track, decorates it so you are totally immersed in the world of Star Trek when you attend Dragon Con.
0: They have a lot of stuff in the room, such as the L cars and posters on the walls. It's so cool. And, um, and the Star Trek programming is, is always full. I mean, it's, it's all day every day of the con. And uh, they just announced some Star Trek guests this year.
1: We'll be, of course, be involved in panel discussions. It's our favorite convention in the entire world for a reason. Dragon Con. We look forward to see, seeing and meeting new listeners there this Labor Day weekend. Starlog Magazine, issue number 39, cover date October 1980. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Donald A. Webster of Hapeville, Georgia writes, Thank you for publishing the interview with Persis Kambata. As a dedicated baldo file, I greatly enjoyed seeing the hairless Miss Kambata in Star Trek. I was most disappointed when she grew her hair back. Now, most women's appearance would be greatly improved with a total loss of hair. It is clear that Miss Kambada looks much better bald than with hair. She could perhaps inspire other women to shave theirs off. Perhaps, if enough fans pressure her, she will be forced to go bald again. I do not mean threats or violence, but gentle fan pressure. There are not many bald women in this world, and they are so beautiful."
0: Okay, that's a weird person.
1: <laughs> okay, now this guy, Donald A. Webster, has written to Starlog before. So he's a regular Starlog writer. This guy's a hardcore fan. Written numerous times. I mean, hey, we believe in IDIC, and this guy just likes well,
0: something a little called, bit
1: different than other people. He
0: called himself a baldophile, so...
1: <laughs> that's so his That's thing.
0: fine if he likes that, but, you know, but... um.
1: Do the drapes match the carpet? I mean, how far does this guy go with this?
0: But Persis Kambata she she actually was beautiful without hair. Gorgeous. But, you know, but I mean, I don't blame her for growing it back. I mean, she looks good with hair, too. (laughs) (sighs) Judith Mosley from New York, New York, says, I was delighted with your interview of Persis Kambata in Starlog 37. She is, to me, a very beautiful person. She can rest assured she has a fan in me. Her ideas of the universe, life, death, and alien life works perfectly with the Star Trek format.
1: I agree. If you haven't listened to our previous episode of Starpod Trek with the interview with Persis Kambada, definitely go back and listen to it. Uh, she embraces what Star Trek is all about. She's about exploring. She's about kindness. Uh, about open-mindedness. Really fascinating person that we lost way too soon.
0: Yeah, it's so sad that, that she died so young. She had heart problems. But, yeah, because I would like to have, have seen her in more things. She did a few things after Star Trek, but not much.
1: Log entries. Latest news from the world of science fiction and fact. Secret Agent Shatner.
0: William Shatner plays the role of Secret Service Officer Jerry O'Connor, whose mission is to save the life of President Hal Holbrook in Karolko's The Kidnapping of the President, now making the rounds in U.S. theaters.
1: You want to talk about the hardest working man in show business? We were just talking about how Bill doesn't stop with making public appearances at conventions. You know, even previous to Star Trek The Motion Picture, he was an incredibly active working actor and we're talking about right after the motion picture, he's involved in another project to be released.
0: It seems he likes staying busy, yeah, even though, it, like, of course, we've also heard that he needed the money. But after the motion picture, he probably wasn't as desperate for work. And, um, yeah, it's just amazing that he has always kept busy. And even now, you know, in, in his 90s, he, he still likes to keep busy. And and that movie is not, it's. I think I heard of it back then, but I had forgotten about it. It's not one of his movies that became popular.
1: We're still in our process, I know if you listen to our other podcast, Star pod log, we're in our process of rewatching or watching for the first time, an incredible amount of movies in the 70s and 80s that flew under our radar. And this is one of them. I've never seen the movie, but I know it's on our list of things that we have to see, because we want to watch every single thing that the stars of Star Trek were in, either pre-trek or post-trek. And William Shatner's, quite a long list.
2: The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said,
3: Perhaps one of the primary features of Star Trek that made it different from other shows was, It believed that humans are improving. They will vastly improve in the 23rd century. StarPod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future.
1: Now this is a special TV issue of Starlog magazine. And I know you said you always loved the TV issues because the entire magazine did not focus in on movies, did not focus in on toys, memorabilia. Uh, It was focusing in entirely on what was going on in television of that time period, the fall preview issue, we would say. What were your fond memories about reading these editions of Starlog magazine?
0: I mean, obviously, I was a big TV watcher growing up. I mean, more, I was more into TV than, than movies. And so reading these, these issues was like, you know, you learn more about the shows, you learn more about the actors, and, and it was also great to have little things like when they did episode guides and things like that, a summary of all the episodes. Oh, I mean, it, it was so neat because you couldn't get it anywhere else back then. And and all the great pictures, too, from the episodes.
1: Yeah, and this special TV preview is going to showcase a couple of items that Star Trek fans would be very interested in because for the most part, kids of this era, if you like Star Trek, you like science as well. It It was kind of marketed as going together. We know a lot of either children's magazines or science magazines would blend the two together. They would show the real world science and how it affected Trek and, and, and vice versa. To me it made Trek even more real than any other science fiction series.
0: Seeing all the um, the pictures and the interviews and like you couldn't really find these anywhere else too, because back then we didn't have VCRs and so you couldn't just watch an episode over and over. I mean, yeah, well, you might you might record it on audio cassette and listen to it over and over, but that was it.
1: Yeah, and this series that's spoke about in Starlog here, Cosmos by Carl Sagan. It was the perfect vehicle for exciting young minds ab- about the mysteries and wonders of space.
0: I loved watching Cosmos every week. Carl Sagan was a great speaker, and that show had had such wonderful visual effects.
1: Yeah, even simple things like how he was able to take complex ideas and reduce it to the ridiculous, such as the Cosmic Calendar, showing that, okay, this is the history of planet Earth, and you know where we are on the calendar, and he actually broke it down, and there were visuals, so you could look at it and say, oh, it makes sense to me now. Because, look, when I was a kid, to, to comprehend what 8 billion years was, it was just too much for my little mind. Whereas he made it so palatable, these concepts.
0: The, the way they made a life-size calendar, where... where um Carl Sagan could could walk on it, and he said, like, Earth is like December 31st on the calendar if all the 8 billion years was was one year to us. Yeah,
1: exactly, and then even broke down the day and the hour, like, wow, this is amazing. And him flying on a ship and to go and explore time and show how man had evolved – over the eons and what cultures were like, what led us into our civilization today. I mean, these are concepts that we were, that were touched upon in Trek, but he made it so come alive like never before. I, I love Cosmos so much.
0: There was even some history on the show, like um, talking about Copernicus and, and yeah, the, and how, um, how science evolved, how, how we, how our knowledge grew with, the, with these scientists when their discoveries It it was a very interesting show, definitely.
1: How did you employ concepts that you learned on the show to your classroom work when you were a child?
0: Um, When I I was in junior high, I actually, in in my science class, they gave us extra credit for it so I could watch the show and take notes during the show and and just turn in my notes, and I got extra credit. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's great for a show that I was going to watch anyway, (laughs) and I get school credit for it. That was nice.
1: And we've been rewatching Cosmos now in preparation for this segment, and it still holds up. Uh, the visual effects there are of the time, which I enjoy watching. I enjoy watching things uh, to, to see how to, – to reminisce of what it was like looking at special effects at that time. But it really does make a point, and, and it's well made. And there's a companion volume, a book that you could read along with that actually has more – information than what the TV show contains. So I definitely recommend our listeners looking into that, but also Neil deGrasse Tyson made an updated version of Cosmos and we're able to see that and we're able to understand how some of the scientific concepts have changed over the decades. And I think that's the best thing about science is that science will correct itself when the realization that there are errors.
0: I mean, it's always growing and evolving as we learn new things, and that's how we we have new technology now too that we didn't have back then. And and um, I loved the the upgraded show with with Neil deGrasse Tyson too, and that one used a lot more um, animation, wh- which which looked good and it and it fit even for for the time that that it was in in the two thousands.
1: Yeah, so he's Neil deGrasse Tyson this is a Trek fan.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> and and he he's a very entertaining scientist too when you see him.
1: Totally, and he's one that, actually, Carl Sagan mentored him. So this is a series that's available at most libraries. You can find it for free online. Highly recommend. If you haven't rewatched Cosmos in a while as a Trek fan, it is a treat. Special TV preview, Nova is back. Were you a Nova fan as a kid?
0: Oh, yes, I was. And, And that was another show that I got extra credit for, too.
1: Yeah, that's, that's another show on PBS. We're both PBS fans. PBS had a lot of British programming, but also a lot of science programming. And, and for nerds like us, that was like peanut butter and jelly.
0: Yeah, just the um, the, the nonfiction shows they had were so cool. They, it was supposed to be the educational channel.
1: I remember they would have in, I went to Ridge Hill School in Hamden, Connecticut, when the, we would have like events it wasn't every week maybe it was once a month that they would say okay we're gonna watch an episode of nova and they would bring in this cart with a tv stand on it and a vcr and this was at a time that not everybody had a vcr i know my family definitely didn't have a vcr they would bring in that tv stand and we watch nova and i was like oh this is so cool look well, were you excited when that cart got rolled into your classroom yeah, you know what I'm talking it, about, right? Yeah.
0: Um, watching TV in school was always fun, and I had never thought of that before. You're right. They had a VCR because you could you see the teacher put the tape in, and 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 I never thought about that. Like, oh, well, I don't have one of those at home. <laughs> but yeah, it was a long time before I got one.
1: Yeah, because it was it was that era of certain things were on a I can't remember the name of it. It was it was they called it a projector. It was like a piece of film that the teacher would draw on with a magic marker and then it would project up. The overhead projector. That's what it was, overhead projector. I I got excited about the overhead projector, but I was super elated when they would bring in that VCR.
0: I remember watching it. Yeah, I mean, because it was great, you know, since I liked watching TV anyway. But, yeah, watching TV in school, oh, good. We don't have to listen to anything else. Just watch TV.
1: It mentions that for this season of Nova, it will... One episode will examine the studies of natural engineers, scientists who look at nature through engineers' eyes, and ask how and why plants and animals are made the way they are. I mean, these are all concepts that are explored in Star Trek to some degree or another.
0: Um, In Star Trek, the the ideas of uh, plants and animals being different, they don't look the way we do now, and sometimes like having aliens that represent something that we know of here on Earth in our time. I mean, didn't you love Beauregard in the man trap? And you could tell it was a hand puppet. There was a hand inside the plant.
1: Wait, that was a hand puppet?
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess not, not as a kid you didn't really notice, but yeah, it, it was pretty neat though. At the edge of the universe, 400 men and women are probing the immeasurable blackness of space. Their leaders are an earthman with no fear and a stranger with no heart. Travel beyond our time and solar system into new galaxies, into worlds beyond your dreams. Star Trek, every week, in color.
4: Whoa, welcome to Sirius Star Trek.
5: It's great to see the the, the luminaries, the stars coming through the show. And now speaking of whom,
6: let's bring in our captain, Larry Young. What's up, Larry? Hey, Dantron, what's happening? Starpod Trek. Those guys are colleagues. There you go. Fred Freiberger. Freiberger? Who knows? Somebody does. He looks like
5: who does he look? You know, he looks exactly. I just nailed who who he looks just like um, Godfather Two. Hyman Roth.
6: Oh yeah, I was gonna say Norman Fell from Three's Company. Okay, maybe a maybe their love child. He's got that hair, definitely. I could just see him calling you booby.
5: Um, I could see him talking about his days. Um, so he thought he was a, he was a writer, right? He started as a writer and he came into producing. this is an interview with Fred Freiberger by the way, from Starlog magazine 39. So this guy started as a writer and he it was in that era where they decided it would be a good idea to turn writers into producers so that they could punch up scripts and whatnot. And so that's sort of how he became a writer. And uh, did a lot of really good stuff he was talking about from the 50s on. He was a writer on shows like Zane Grey Theater, Rawhide, Wanted Dead or Alive. You know, classic TV, great TV shows. And then interviewed to write Star Trek. Interviewed with Roddenberry. And Roddenberry wanted him to write for the first season of Star Mm -hmm. Trek. But he was going to Europe with his family. And, and, uh, when he came back, the job had already been taken, but he was hired on to season three. Now this is as much as I know about this guy. And so maybe Larry, we're talking a little bit backstage about a little context. What do you, what, what's like the star Trek take on this guy?
6: Well, um, uh, there's, there's two thoughts, right? The, there's the, there's the, 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 lore that you swallow. And then if you look into it, it's like the real story. So, um, The poor bastard. I mean, a a working a working producer comes in to uh, to produce a show and everybody's got, you know, they've got ideas about what's going on. Right. So the way I understand it and most of what I know of this side of the story is from David Gerald's World of Star Trek, which obviously when you have somebody who's involved in the creative side, they're going to tell the creative side of the story. So I guess that he and, and Dorothy Fontana who was a I don't know if she was a story editor I I know it's been so long I don't remember exactly but she started as Gene Roddenberry's secretary and then became then became very accomplished in in producing stuff uh, writing and producing stuff. She's you know she did the Quester tapes for him she did uh, uh the thing that Star Trek fans really know her about overtly is the the only episode of the Star Trek animated show that, that uh, was considered canon by Gene, which was like the big anointing of the Pope, right? It was the uh, yesteryear, the one about young Spock. Something happens with the Guardian of Forever Young, and Spock is erased from existence. Uh, and anyway, so creative guys have an idea about how creative should work, and producers sometimes, you know, or like, like Freiber, or Freiber, 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 Fred, let's just call him Fred. Cause I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but uh, he started as a writer. So he's going to understand the, what creative and the talent want, but it doesn't usually go the other way. Creative and talent don't understand the nuts and bolts of actually producing and getting, getting the show out the door. Right. At some point. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, no, to me, and that's what this guy was, was like, they
5: brought him in, in season three when budgets got cut and there had to be more, there just had to be more writing. It just had to be more like we're on the Enterprise and there's character drama. And sometimes it seems like he got hit from the fandom for like, there's too much drama in this, but I think he recognized rightly that that needs to be the core of
6: Star Trek. I agree, but I, I think it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies or Maybe not self-fulfilling because I'm pretty sure he had nothing to do with this. But once World of Star Trek comes out and the Star Trek third season is kind of, it's kind of up and down, right? There's some good episodes, but there's some stinkers too. And in the first two seasons, there's, there's, uh, stories that are successful and stories that don't work that great, but they're, they're not really stinkers. You know, like there's no Spock's brain. There's no, even he week. calls out Fox brain. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the stinkers are obvious to everyone. Right. But, but that happens in, in the fast paced world of TV production. And especially the context of which Star Trek was at the time that, that after season two, that show was pretty much canceled. And if it wasn't for the famous B Joe Trimble, uh, marshalling all the fans and writing to NBC and picketing out front, there wouldn't have been a, a third season. So, He, I think we should all credit that guy that we got another season of episodes. Maybe they're not all stars, but, you know, it worked out. Well, and then, so he went on to work
5: on uh, Space 1999. I watched a great documentary about Space 99, how it came from the ashes of a series called UFO. Right. That was produced by Jerry Anderson as well. And Jerry Anderson is my new, like, hero I only really knew like Thunderbirds and the Supermarionation stuff that's like as much Jared I really penetrated as I didn't realize he went on to do the effects I've seen on Space 99 were just really really top-notch some of the best model work I've ever seen certainly for TV right
6: yeah that's Brian Johnson who had worked on 2001 so you know those guys knew what they were doing for the special effects but i was i was going to say that you you know i'm a giant i've worn my space 1999 gear on this, on your on this show and uh, but i'm a giant fan of ufo so i'm pretty well versed in this part of the show oh really? okay oh, i got to yeah. send you this documentary it was
5: great it opened my my I, eyes you probably know all the stuff maybe. yeah
6: i think i have it on dvd i know what you're talking about okay but uh, but yeah ufo was a was a crazy good show and so far ahead of its time and when i ever when i talk about top 5 tv show intros like you know hawaii 50 and wild wild west just rockford files 6 million dollar man ufo is always in the top 5 that that music is slapping it's cool uh, future jazz it's cut together like an mtv thing if you if you show just a random person the the first, just the, the intro of the show they will, it's impossible to guess what year that was produced. Yeah. Okay. I so wish the, I
5: had kept, I, I, I had checked it cause I haven't cleared it yet to know if I could play it or not, but, um,
6: I can hum it. What are they going to do? Come to my house. Was, and, but, but to bring it together, like yeah. Fred, uh, was also hired to do the second season of space, 1999 where he did exactly what you were saying. He's, he's interested in the drama. He wants to up the action. The first season of Space 1999 is great, but it's, it's pretty antiseptic. Mm. Like, there's no, there's no hard resolution to the stories, which it works really well in 1976. And now I think it's ahead of its time. Like, the answer to everything is like, well, we don't know what that was. <laughs> Stay tuned next week when we'll find out another thing that, like, what is going on there. <laughs> right? But that's, a, that's an acquired taste uh-huh. in 1976. So they put everybody in cool jackets and you know zipped up the music and had monster of the week and that was a little that was that was saving it. There was a man. I feel like I could talk about this stuff for hours. <laughs> that uh, that space 1999 started as another season of UFO. Yes, they were going to they were going to soup up the moon base. So when you when you see UFO and Space 1999, you see those are completely related. Even if you don't read the credits, just as a fan, you're like they have cool ships, they have a moon base, they're you know they're attacking these problems. And uh, so instead of Sir Lou Grade, I think I'm pretty sure was his, uh, he was the finance guy for ITC. He was like, well, we could do a, another set of UFO. Or we could just try again, clean up some of the problems we we perceive. They're not even, I mean, I'm, I'm mad there aren't seven seasons of UFO. Aliens come to Earth and harvest organs from people. And, they, and the, the people fighting them are a secret base that, that run out of a movie studio. So whenever anything weird happens, they go, we're just shooting a movie. Oh, my God, that's such a good idea. But, yeah, so they turned it into Space 1999. Well, and they like, said like it was once um,
5: Martin Landau got attached that it was like everything's a go we got Land- Landau's on board, right. we're it. Like that was such a that was enough to like make it all happen. We're in Hollywood, you gotta have a star yeah. attached for an American show. Mm-hmm. Um,
6: well you and- see why you see why that worked, right? Because he had especially in seventy six, coming off of Mission Impossible and all his movie work. That guy had gravitas to spare. Yeah, he did. So, if you're trying to sell, you know, a dopey thing about guys on the moon that's been blasted on the Earth's orbit, you know, Martin Landau is your guy. And and then they sort of just tried to make him into Harrison Ford, and <laughs> that was that was not as successful in season two. Sure. But between Dorothy Fontana and David Gerald giving him a hard time about the guy who got Star Trek canceled with his crap, and then to have Him trying to breathe life into a second season of Space 1999 that was not as successful. The fans of the first bit were like, this is crap. And guys that wanted to see a cool drama action thing were like dismissive because they already thought Space 1999 was something that he was making it, I think, better. I mean, I love both seasons because I'm... In the tank for space stuff, yeah. But I get I why the casting stuff
5: was really interesting too. They talked about how like they were contractually obligated to have these Italian actors in there because they had a deal with the Italian production the finances. Stuff. It's yeah. like our international crew from all over the world's got two two Italian
6: folks were <laughs> like, kind of shoehorned in there. Yeah, but you know, I loved it. I I loved the whole thing where uh, um, Alan Carter was one of my favorite guys because he's the action guy that is doing the you know, early 30s stuff that mid-50s uh, Martin Landau can't do. So, of course, he's cool. Uh, is he the Australian getting, dude? Is
2: yeah, yeah, Australian? Nick
6: Tate. Yeah. He's a, he ended up being a pretty famous voiceover guy in his later years. He's still around. I love Nick Tate. He was, he was in a Nick Tate. He other episode.
5: nationality, and he talked him into like letting him use his Aussie accent instead and yeah. making the guy Australian. Good boy. Yeah.
6: Well, I mean, it's great because you know, and in, in the future, in 1999, of course, everyone's going to be from other countries and all work together, and there's not going to be Russian-Ukraine invasions or anything like that.
5: Okay, so Freddie here is known as the guy, and in TV, this is this makes you the like a super essential commodity, somebody who could take some bits and pieces of something that that we spent a lot of money on already. We dumped mm-hmm. a lot of dough into these sets and these ideas. And let's turn it into something that can be commercially viable. Mm-hmm. And at least for a moment, I guess he proved that enough. And, and his attachment to Star Trek and Space 99, 1999 made him like a sci-fi fix-up guy. Mm-hmm. And so he got involved with, I guess, the motion picture, the creation of the motion picture, which followed a similar pattern, right? You want to tell us about the pattern on, on how the motion picture came out of the ruins of another thing.
6: Sure. Sure. I, I just feel bad for this guy because like both of us know there's, there's talent and then there's production and sometimes they don't meet. So he, uh, yeah, poor Fred is getting boned. I think we got extra seasons of stuff that was going to get canceled because of him. Yeah. So maybe it wasn't that successful from a creative standpoint. You could make the argument. But he gave us a whole set of seasons of stuff we wouldn't have had. Totally. So, so the the bean counters go, that's great because we're making money from this guy. So when they decided to do a, a Star Trek sequel series, it was going to be another five year mission, and uh, it was called Star Trek Phase Two, and uh, they had everybody sign back up again except for Leonard Nimoy. So they put two more characters in, and they started building sets. They had, uh, you know, the bridge and the engineering, and they're they're ready to go, spending money on this. And then Star Wars hits, and is is you know global phenomenon. So Paramount goes, well, we have this thing; it's I even got Star in the title. Let's ride this wave. So they upgraded Star Trek Phase Two to Star Trek the Motion Picture. So I'm not a hundred percent sure how much he was involved in that. I think mm. he was more involved in Star Trek Phase Two, of getting. Uh, scripts uh, ready oh, I the, see I see that he was the guy that uh, not he, he, there was nothing to say but he was like he, he knows the worlds of Star yeah. Trek he can he knows how the worlds of Hollywood he knows uh, production he's he's their guy there was a uh, writers named John Pavel were um, in in on that and yeah I, 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 I'm not sure hundred percent on Star Trek phase 2 about his involvement but he was. Oh. And okay, well, and I
5: would, yeah, and, and I would think that, you know, that, that he had a hand in that, and then that morphed into the movie. What were, like, I felt like there was so much unspoken in that movie. Now, you mm. were, you're old enough that you saw this thing live <laughs> I when it did. first debuted. I was four years old.
6: Yeah, I was, the, I was there opening day dressed in my handmade Star Trek, the motion picture costume that I eyeballed from, uh, pictures press pictures from uh, McCall's magazine something that my mom had hanging around and I was like oh my god Star Trek but uh but yeah yeah he was uh, I'm sorry I got all excited with a nos- nostalgia what did you Oh uh, Tony said Frigerberger was brought in to save the 6 million oh. man.
5: It's like he's guy who could spin you know gold out of straw or whatever the saying is he could do it and so I feel like but there was there was a lot unspoken in that movie. Like, who is Baldy? And what's up? You know, like, what is I this? See. They I talk see. about this relationship that's implied. And, like, there was stuff that was happening. There was this whole crew of right. the Enterprise. They were obviously planning for a bigger continuity with a bigger cast. And had to just, like, chop everybody out and shove Kirk and Spock back into it.
6: So, the Stephen Collins character, Decker, and uh, Persis Kambada character, Ailea, were uh, Decker's character was actually going to be a Vulcan named Zahn, who was played by dang, I used to know the actor's name, but in, in the beginning of the motion picture, he's the guy from Regula One. Not yes. Regula One. The guy the yes, guy's a good Vulcan for movie. a minute
5: that shows up, right? And then they lose him and they <laughs> gotta bring Spock in.
6: That's Mr. Savage No, remember the the bit where Virger eats the Federation uh, outpost? It's yes. some kind of that guy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He, he was supposed to be a Vulcan in phase two. And so they gave him that bit because you're like, Oh, you were going to be the new letter Nimoy. Sorry. At least we'll put you at the beginning of this movie or we'll kill and, you
5: in the first two minutes of right? the real
6: thing. So, so he, his character, they didn't need a Vulcan anymore because he was supposed to be a reminder of Spock, right? Because Nimoy wasn't signing up for another TV show. David Gatro, he sort of morphed into the Decker character mm-hmm. and. They they were going to be the action guys for Phase Two because the you know Shatter and Scotty and all those guys were getting a little long in the tooth, and so they just moved that relationship over into um, into the movie, and fortunately they sort of echoed that in Next Generation because when uh, season two writer strike happened they had like five or six scripts for uh, Star Trek Phase Two and they just gave the Zahn and Ailea parts to Riker and Troy and just changed everybody's name and just shot uh-huh. stuff they had already played. So that was, that was pretty smart. But yeah, you're right that there was, that was, it, it looks like you're kind of coming in on the middle of a relationship because for the Star Trek production team, like they'd been living with those characters for a while and they just boosted them into the, into the movie. It was kind of cool that it was like, sort of unspoken backstory. I mean, they talk
5: about their relationship a little bit and it's obvious Decker was brought in too, for a little bit of sex appeal. I mean, <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Men, kind
5: of... They were getting along in the
6: tooth for like a love scene with, with, with um, Shatner. You, you love that. Cause you know, that line, uh, well, my oath of celibacy is on record, Admiral, you know, that's like, but you're too old anyway. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh. poor Kirk.
5: yeah ah, what are you gonna do it worked out faster too early
6: i oh, mean so them.
5: but though, at the time so when this thing dropped was this how big a phenomenon was it? i don't even remember it wasn't a monster mega
6: hit in the box office right the movie yeah the motion oh yeah movie. you're right i mean even me, that I loved it, right? I saw it like twelve or fourteen times in the theater before I realized it's not really that great a movie. I, <laughs> I love it now, but it's to be, you know, it came out in '79, so two years after Star Wars and a year before Empire. The fanboys are like, uh, it's a little c- cerebral for, you know, what we wanted. It's it's an excellent Star Trek story. I love it. In retrospect, you know what I mean? It really I, felt too um, 2001
5: Space Odyssey. Like, they sure. took too many cues from that and not yeah. enough cues from Star Wars, which right. was, ironically, more Star trek than Star Trek The Motion Picture was. Well, well yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's I just guess. that there's ship battles and there's just, it was just sure. more fun sci-fi tropes and stuff.
6: Sure, sure, um, yeah. I agree. Yeah. It's funny in retrospect now because Star Trek is trying to be Star Wars and it's like, "I'll oh, be Star Trek." I maybe uh, they need to be something different
5: altogether, Larry. Maybe that's just well, maybe the answer yeah. really is they got to start they got to try something so out out there that, you know, it hasn't been done yet.
6: Well, yeah. I mean, anything that has been going on for 60 years, like Star Trek needs its own uh Daniel Craig you know what I mean? Something that just makes makes it more relevant. I don't know, I I, th- I believe that's what they're trying to do, but they they didn't hit it a good. I don't know. It's a it's a tough thing to do. All uh, you know, uh, I think
5: James Bond is a good example. Like if you they did it right, but what they did there was, I think they went back to the source material and made it more like Ian Fleming would have made.
6: I agree. Made it you, right. You. you update the source material to modern sensibilities and that's why yeah. I say I, I, I crap on Kurtzman all the time but I, I think that is their intent right that they're going so. back to the they've just chosen the wrong things to, to highlight I just watched the last week's uh, Picard I was on vacation so I didn't have a chance to watch I just watched it this morning and I was like wow this is actually a good episode I really enjoyed it I hear so, people say good things about Picard for sure yeah, it uh, <laughs> don't go crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, but it is uh, the the end of the second season getting they're getting their reminder, they're they're wrapping their heads around what people want from Star Trek, so that's cool. It's only taken them six years. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've been. I, 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 one of I'm the been, things I liked I, about the Phase Two thing is that at the time that was the most expensive movie ever made. And boy, did the Paramount marketing machine go into that up until then. I, I believe it was a, a movie called, it wasn't Sorcerer Bridge Too Far. That was the, the more, most expensive movie made at the time. And they said, you know, we, we blew by that by $10 million. And it's because they folded in all the production costs and development costs from Star Trek uh, phase. Well, two. Of course. Yeah. So,
5: uh, they spent it all on glory shots of the Enterprise exterior glory shots.
6: Well, you're talking to the wrong guy on that one. I, if they had made an eight hour version of that scene where it's just Kirk and Scotty like flying around, going, Oh man, look at that door! and oh geez, that photon torpedo, I would have loved that. Check out
5: the the moldings on the Jeffries tubes, everything's all nice, guys
6: flying by, floating by. That's that's not for everybody. But and definitely not for um, uh, most regular moviegoers at the time. It's it's a pretty long. Was a
5: quantum? Well, I guess Star Wars was that quantum leap of finally seeing like really good spaceships and space battles and stuff. And that was my complaint about this. About in comparison, Star Trek to to the motion picture compared to the Star Wars stuff was like we got tie fighter battles and you know exciting. And in in this one, we got nothing but, like, glory shots and space entity stuff, which is fun and amazing the first time it's seen. But now when you look at it, you're like, well, I'm not seeing anything that impresses me at all.
6: Well, I'm not really going to say anything original on this. It's pretty well known that uh, having Robert Wise as the director, he really went deep into Star Trek and did, like, the philosophical you know permutations of what they're doing and what they're out for and that's just not a theatrical thing that would have worked great in a in a star trek episode where you can you have that time to explore you know the human adventure and that's why they they god bless paramount they completely went oh right people want space battles and they want you know high stakes and that's where star trek 2 came from and, and talk about pulling it
5: out like after that like how absolutely. amazing that feeling is and that's one of those ones where i'll take star trek 2 and i'll put it up against empire strikes back on a just a fun movie yeah absolutely fun sci-fi movie you could show to anybody and star trek wrath of might even win over empire because only because you don't really even have to have watched star trek the motion
6: picture to really enjoy wrath yeah. of khan as as a guy who loves narrative, I agree with you 100%. Like the the whole theme of you know, they overtly recognize that all their characters that you love are getting old. And so the story is, hey, remember this error you made in judgment when you were a boy, when you were a younger oh, man has come back to haunt you as an old guy, and the only reason you survive is because you've learned your lesson, right? That's that's even at, I mean, I love that then, but I love it now as an old man. You know? Yeah, You take away all the Star Trek stuff and yeah. just that storyline alone, yeah, yeah.
5: you know, is the core, what you need at the core
6: of that movie. But that's, uh, to bring it back to Fred, that's the problem poor Fred had that they didn't in Star Trek Two. Wrath of Khan, is that Fred is thinking, let's get these episodes out the door. And he's kind of hurting feelings on the way out, right? The you know, I, I've never heard an actor saying anything about him. It's the but it's the talent behind the scene, the camera that is just like that guy is responsible for everything. But Paramount, I don't know if it was a lucky thing that happened, or when they hired uh Nicholas Meyer to, to direct, he uh, he must have you know what, it must have been the producer, Harve Bennett, that brought Nicholas Meyer in. I'm not sure who who came in first, but there was a production guy handling um production. And then, then there was a director who had a vision and got a you know a good script going. And both guys worked together, doing their stuff at the top of their games, to just you know in a in a in an atmosphere that they didn't have the big budget that the first one had. And they, man, they pulled out some magic. So when when the production guys and the creative guys get together, that's good. You can Poor Fred has learned or we have learned, the audience has learned from Fred's example, that you, you can't muscle the creative guys to do their best work. And the creative guys can't get their stuff out the door unless the, they let the production guys do their thing. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's
5: yeah, a good that's lesson. the synthesis. That's, and it's tough to get those, two, those things in sync. But when they are, it's when you get incredible, you know, you yeah, get incredible stuff. Man. I think, yeah, Star Trek, I, 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 honestly, I will put up Wrath of Khan against Empire Strikes Back as, like, if it's like, what what movie would I want to watch right now? Hmm. I think I'd probably rather watch Wrath of Khan, to tell you the truth.
6: I love the whole, like, what's the best sequel ever made, and everybody mostly says Godfather 2. And I'm like, you you guys are forgetting Wrath of Khan. I think that is the the gulf between how... Uh, the first movie was received, and how the second one came is so much wider and more impressive in Star Trek than it is in Godfather, that I think I, I got to give it to her. But uh, oh, speaking of Harv Bennett, that the you know the the guy behind uh, getting that a uh, Star Trek two out the door, Fred was brought in for a Six Million Dollar Man, and yes. Harv Bennett Harv Bennett was a producer on Six Million Dollar Man for a long time. Freiberger was associated with Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space. That is a giant trigger for me. <laughs> uh, the, as you know, the comics uh, I'm known for is Astronauts in Trouble. And there was this uh, a critic named uh, John uh, Draper Carlson. who, When Astronauts in Trouble I two, 2 came out, she was like, Oh, this is just Josie and Pussycats in outer space. And because I was a younger man and I had spent a lot of money hiring Matt and Charlie. And I just, I didn't need to hear that, man. And so <laughs> I, I just like, as when I, back when I was younger, I, I just, that hated me. And now I just kind of like, oh, yeah, I didn't handle that very well back in the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so this is killing me. You know, it's bringing it back to David Gerald, the writer of who, uh, Tribbles and stuff who hated <laughs> Freiberger, Freeberger, whatever. He had a great story that he pitched for Star Trek called the Protract- protracted man. And the story yeah, was yeah. a guy got phased out of existence and he, he had seen, um, a special effect bit that was misaligned. So the red, blue and green was like a little out of character. And they were like, wow, well, let's have a guy walking through the corridor of the enterprise. That's just a different color step behind him. Yeah. Cool. And That'd be cool. It, it suggested a whole story. I was like, Oh my God. Give me that story now. Yeah, and, that would be super cool. Uh
5: one thing I was to to say one to. thing I liked about Freiburger in that article was he was like sure there were some turkeys, right? But like if you look at our if you look at our batting average, it was about like 80%. Maybe maybe 10 maybe in one season there were two or three or four even stinkers. But if you look at their production schedule and how many amazing episodes they put out in a season, even season three, they were doing great. Right.
6: I think uh, I'm a hundred percent hypnotized by that, but I a hundred percent agree with your statement that uh, the, that, but that's what creatives never think, right? Like no creatives will never say we got it out the door. It's 80% perfect. We'll, we'll do 85 next time. And that's what production guys think all the time. That uh, it's like, that's what I love. You you know John bassema the artist, his famous quote that like, just draw the telephone, and don't erase it and redraw it. Just draw it better next time. That's. And that's I wish every creative person would put that in their brains, because that's my motto for this
5: show. It's like yeah. I have yet to do a perfect show, or even maybe even a super great show. But everyone, we're getting a little bit better. We're getting a couple of new techniques, a new graphic here, a little something here and there. We're throwing it together.
6: Let's do, there's one more bit there that we saw motion picture in the th- theaters. I saw it in the theaters. I dressed up. I loved it. I was, it was my dream come true that my favorite show, Star Trek, had a theatrical release. I, uh, it, we got to see it. it was December 7th, I'm pretty sure, um, Pearl Harbor Day. And I, so that's cold where I lived in rural Vermont and I stood outside. I wasn't wearing a jacket. I was wearing a Star Trek uniform and I was willing to freeze to go see that movie. That's how excited I was. And uh, there were some folks that were happy, (laughs) you know, but I think everybody had a different impression of when you went to go see the motion picture in the theater at the time. It really depended if you were a Star Trek fan or not. Like now, right? You forgive so many things for stuff that you like. You know, that's, you know, this, you know, if your wife bakes you a birthday cake and it's it's okay, you know, that's the best birthday cake you ever had because you know what's behind it. And that's how I feel about the first uh, Star Trek movie is well, I hey, know what was it behind it. Off
5: the air? How long did season three, was, was the end of season three? And it, it was in reruns continuously up until yeah. the Came out it was about out.
6: ten years. '69 was the last of uh, season three. They had a cool thing that the last episode, "Turnabout Intruder," didn't play when it was supposed to. It was a preempted for a, a Barnum and ba- Barnum, Ringling Brothers Circus special. And once they redid all the reruns, then they had a. They it went out with a fresh show.
3: Oh, that's cool.
6: So it was like I think it was like the end of June in 1969. And then December of nineteen seventy nine, so it's ten years basically between the last live episode and the and the sh- and the movie.
5: So it had to be huge for for diehard fans and stuff. Ah,
6: like I said, I I saw it fourteen times before. I was like, yeah, it's not that good a movie. <laughs> it just,
5: it, what it's amazing about the Roddenberry verse too is just that it went on the air. It was only three seasons, but it never left. It never went off. Like, I'm sure everyone had, was surprised. brand new fans the, the whole time. The whole
6: time. Yeah. time, yeah. I, uh, I started, even, and even then, 1973 was when they did the cartoon, so that's, I, I had seen it a couple episodes of the third season as a boy, but it was on late at night on Friday, so I don't remember it. But, but I do remember when the cartoon started in 1973, I was like, oh, this is that show. And I kind of got into Star Trek because of the cartoon. So, it, it didn't It didn't go away. They had books about the production, and I'm pretty sure some of the paperbacks, the James Blish novelizations of the episodes were out. So it was a thing. Yeah.
5: But it's also so. the
6: fact that it had been a
5: TV thing. It had been a small screen thing for everybody for decades. And then to finally see the Enterprise in, 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 in its glory, I get why they went nuts with the glory shots. I understand. Yeah, yeah. that's what it was. It's just, And it's just that at the moment, that had to be huge because you'd never seen it. But since then, like, if you're a young fan coming, it's hard to understand what would have been magic about Star Trek The Motion Picture.
6: I agree.
1: Okay, our convention report for this episode, Wonderfest 2022 Louisville, Kentucky. Special guest, Nicholas Meyer. What did you think about Wonderfest this year?
0: Wonderfest was awesome. Yeah, they um, came back with a blast this year. It was, it was actually more crowded than we've seen it before, and probably mostly because of Nicholas Meyer, I think. A lot of people wanted to see him. He's a famous movie director and famous Star Trek director.
1: Yes, 40th anniversary of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Very entertaining as a speaker. And very open and honest in stating that he was not a Star Trek fan, he was a fan of maritime drama, and that's how he approached the movie. He realized that Star Trek in itself was Horatio Hornblower in space.
0: He, he directed Star Trek too, as you said. So it's, it's like it's you know like one of the most popular, maybe the most popular Star Trek movie. It's a fan favorite. And, yeah, even not being a fan, he knew uh, what makes a good movie. And, and it did have a lot of nautical themes in it, and he wanted that. He even wanted that in the music. Like, you, you could kind of tell that, that it sort of gives you the impression of being on a ship. And the, the whole idea, and it just worked really well, bringing back Khan and the way he presented it and everything.
1: Yeah, it's amazing his stories. We're going to end up posting his presentation on YouTube so look out on our youtube channel for links to that but it's this guy he really reinvented the look and feel of star trek because of the fact that he wanted everything to feel like they're in a a real navy he wanted to put some extreme suspense in there a submarine battle in space can you imagine if we didn't have him enter the Star Trek franchise? It would it'd just be a totally different feel.
0: It would, especially after the motion picture. And Star Trek had to kind of prove itself again with the second movie. And so we, we are so glad he did that.
2: Carl Sagan invites you to watch Cosmos, a 13-part series appearing on public television. Cosmos takes you on an epic journey through space and time to the galaxies, the stars, our past and our future. Join Carl Sagan as he explores some of the mysteries of life on Earth and the possibilities of life out there. Watch for Cosmos. You never know who else might be watching. Cosmos is made possible in part by a grant from Atlantic Richfield Company. Check your local listing for time and date.
1: Starlog magazine, issue number 40, cover date, November, 1980.
7: Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Castro.
3: And we are talking about Starlog issue number 40, way back in November, 1980. And we're going to be looking at B. Joe Trimble's article, Fan Scene. But first... Kelly and I, we like to poke around in the start yes, we do magazines a little bit. We found a few things that are interesting. How about that cover photo, first of all? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Right? I Luke mean, Skywalker with Yoda from Empire Strikes Back. Right. The, the Dagobah scene. So cool. It is. We both mentioned uh, that we found an article entitled Marvel Leaps into TV Film Production. Now, this is kind of interesting. The Blurb reported that Marvel Entertainment had created a television, motion picture and animation studio. That's
7: so, really cool, right? Yeah, it's it's super cool. It I mean, could it be the birth of the MCU? In a, in a weird way, I think you're right. I
3: I think while today's Marvel movies are not a result of that studio's creation back in 1980, they're at least a result of that same vision, right?
7: Yes, definitely. And at the very least, they talked about the ABC, the Spider Man cartoon. It was oh, gonna, yeah. You know, on ABC, which had, if I'm not mistaken, had Firestar and Iceman. And- right, right.
3: Absolutely. I mean, you and I were in high school or, or college at that time, but I remember having to like check them out. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, wait. Yeah. Spider Man's got a new cartoon. Well, of course I'm going to check that out. Yes. <laughs> That's just fun stuff. Yeah, I know. We're we're geeks. A little bit. Now let's move on to fan scene by B yes. jo Trimble. In let's, this yeah. month's edition, she entitled this article Ideas About Ideas. And B jo opens talking about receiving letters on her first few columns. And in those, she claimed that some of the readers were upset that she didn't have subjects for those
7: columns. <laughs> Yes, that's, that's funny. So she got several fan letters and she goes on and describes some of those. Um, but one of the things I thought was interesting and, and she toyed around with was fandom, um, science fiction fandom and the ratio between women and men. Oh, this was really interesting. Yeah. So, and I don't know where she got her facts, but, um, what she said and you know i i tend to believe it is before star trek it was about a 1 to 22 ratio from women to men um in science fiction fandom mm-hmm. or at least you know per they women professing that they liked science fiction right during star trek the original series as it was airing that ratio goes to about one in 14. And then after it goes after Star Trek is done and over with and in syndication at this point, it's about one in five. I thought it was really interesting
3: that, that first of all, she had those numbers. I agree with you. Where did she get those? Yeah. One female for every 22 males. I can only guess that maybe those old world con conventions. Maybe they had attendee lists, and she yeah. was able to go back through and look at some of those but yeah I, I do believe that Star Trek probably brought the ratio down.
7: There's a lot of ladies who liked Spock, <laughs> yes, but in fairness too, the ideals of Star Trek really they um, did they they helped promote you know more engagement in you know women. Absolutely. Because they were looked at as equals.
3: Positive portrayal of women, and not only white women, but women of different races yes. in the future. How can you not like that? And yeah. I'm being sincere, not as, you know, oh, yeah. right. a sophomore trapped in a 59 year old's body. <laughs> <laughs> so. Some letters, did you like that? I, that one just came out. Some yes. letters offered their opinions on what a column like b Joe's should be. I thought yes. this was interesting. Was. And b Joe went on to say that I can't and won't become a monthly article about merchandise. Right. That would prove too expensive. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
7: Can you imagine oh. b
3: Joe buying oh, all no. of that stuff that was coming out in the 70s and 80s? Yes.
7: Well, and the... And the next one um, geared itself towards merchandise shopping centers. She oh my god, it. yes! And she's like, "I am not going to give you suggestions necessarily on how to locate souvenirs or sales on science fiction <laughs> merchandise." <laughs> you know, here, he, well, go ahead and go look at you know the conventions, and you go find it yourself. It's it's almost like.
3: People looked at B-Joe as the mother of all Star Trek fans, right? M- right. M- mother B-Joe. And I'm going to turn to you for all of my Star Trek questions. Yes. I loved this one. Some fan asked her to get Leonard Nimoy's address. Yes, and then to get him to send personal greetings to the to the writer of that letter. Yes. So she had quite the terse comeback for that one. She I don't did.
7: know what his address is, and I wouldn't dream of asking. She did. The one of them that I liked was uh, somebody. Well, it was a couple fans actually. She said wrote about getting the rights to continue the Star Trek Concordance. Oh yeah, um, and so that they could include the motion picture. And she said she basically says um, if it's going to be updated and corrected, she's going to do it. <laughs> but. <laughs> Unfortunately, was it Ballantine didn't have the rights. They stopped publishing the concordance at this at that point in time. Right. And pocket books owned the rights to Star Trek, and so yeah, yep. not likely in the future. Not likely. Uh, one letter writer
3: suggested that you know she's B. Joe Trimble and she has a voice and she should use her voice to support. And I liked this <laughs> yes. something or. Denounce something else, right. something, right? It wasn't like you should support this movement or denounce that thing. It was just, you should get out there and do something. And I liked <laughs> her response. I'm definitely for the manned and unmanned space programs. I'm definitely <laughs> right. against allowing people to remain in office who consistently vote themselves high raises, high raises in pay, but do not work to earn a salary. Vote the rascals out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Some might yes. say her comments apply yes. today. <laughs>
7: yeah. <laughs> There's, so there was one and I, I just, I have to bring this up because I loved how she said it. She described this lady as a militant lady who wanted B-Joe to go after Ellison's <laughs> review of
2: yes, I saw motion that. picture.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'm not gonna paraphrase everything she said, but basically she's like, I've known Ellison since he, she, they were both 18, and there'd be no point challenging him. Had he, she would challenge anybody if she believed strongly enough against, you know, or strongly enough to challenge. But if it ever got to that with Alice, Ellis, Ellison, it just would not end well. And the point would be lost. The flurry of verbiage. Yes, the flurry of verbiage. Right, that's what she
3: said. (laughs) I I love that phrase. We're going to have to use that at some point. Yes, the flurry
7: of verbiage.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This one was kind of uh, confusing to me. She also um, talked about a woman writer who asked, why didn't Bijo push for the space shuttle to be named Constitution. Yes. Since the Enterprise was a Constitution class starship. Boy, it did get named Enterprise, and you think that might make her happy. Right. But apparently not. No.
7: That was a head scratcher, that one. Yeah, well she she went on to describe that she might not have been the person or entity that was pushing the haven't named Enterprise, and I liked, um I liked her uh, response because it's like okay, yes, she pushed for it, but um, not necessarily the one who really wanted it. And she she might have preferred that it be called something else, and the actual first space shuttle to go into space would be called Enterprise.
3: Yes. Yeah. I thought that was interesting too. Right. Rather than the dummy shuttle that doesn't fly into space. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, after reading this article, it's funny. It occurred to me that Bijo was doing something that actually happens a lot today on the internet. Yes. Um, in our online culture today, right? Websites need content. So they are constantly creating articles about in the end, nothing. You know, sometimes it's just a point of conjecture on their part and they're writing a whole article about it. What right. if? And they just want people to click so they see the advertisements on the website. Well, in 1980, BJ was doing something very similar. She, she needed to create lots of content for Starlog. So she was looking for ideas everywhere, yeah. you know, and, and in this instance, she used the idea of taking ideas from readers to create her next article. I found that fascinating. She didn't know it, but she was living a little bit of the future back in 1980. Oh yeah, definitely. And I was also taken aback by the, the fact that there was a little clue into the communication status of 1980, right? As she is ending it uh, talking about a school science fiction club invitation that she couldn't attend Because she found out about it too late because of the speed of communication between letters, getting to New York, getting to her in L.A. Right. No faxes, no email, no DMs, no texts. No, no, no.
7: (laughs) Not even phone calls.
3: That's right.
4: Yeah.
2: Hi, I'm Joseph Cepeda, and I'm here with my uh, friend, uh, Robert Lopez. Uh, We're from Atlanta, Georgia. We do uh, Star Trek Nature Hunger Films. And we're here to talk about the Roddenberry article. First, let's do a quick recap of the article in a nutshell. Primarily, the article focuses on interviewing Roddenberry one year after Star Trek The Motion Picture had come out. It talks about the challenges of filmmaking, his challenges of converting his artistic vision To the big screen, the article talks about dealing with how he had to handle the movie executives and the challenges of money versus time. Then the article expounds upon his regrets and his lack of clout with the Hollywood chief executives and getting things done his way. And lastly, the article discusses the possibility of a sequel and his future projects. Let, let, let's dive into some questions here. So, do you think that uh, Roddenberry succeeded in adapting his TV show from the little
4: screen to the big, big screen? Well, what's your thoughts on that? Well, the, you know, understanding the challenges he had, uh, considering Hollywood was not ready for uh, the, their interpretation of the sci-fi was probably. Uh, uh, example, one or two million dollars or something, you know, we just put up some cardboards so and we'll make it look nice, you know, hmm. uh, and we uh, atti- had the, yeah, the attitude just like they were not prepared because Lucas Films did the uh, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. OK, that's uh, right. And by doing that, they say, well, wait, we can, uh, you know, check this out, too, as well. But no, they had no idea, not prepared for it. And Roddenberry's ability to try to transform that, you know, uh, it was it was pretty difficult. Him and the and his assistant to get it out with the, the with the Hollywood studio. Uh, I think you raised a good question there uh, because weren't
2: they would you say in competition with Star Wars, having come out a couple of years before, trying to
4: best them? Uh, well, they they wanted something similar to that. You know, uh, they just didn't understand sci-fi. Mm. Okay, that's what they're good about. point. I mean, it, you know, the final outcome is, uh, as you already know, but. Uh, that's it. Had to be the way it, the way it turned out. There's no way you can change it because their attitude was uh, um, in the infant stage of understanding sci- sci-fi. Let's talk about Roddenberry, the
2: man—a soldier, pilot, policeman, screenplay writer, TV producer, and now movie producer. So, what do you think of Roddenberry, the man, and his vision? <laughs>
4: That 's a loaded question um, it
7: definitely uh, is
4: uh, he his vision for uh, Star Trek was uh, enormous uh, he saw great possibilities to have wonderful mm. uh, you know which technology at the time was very limited, but he saw the availability in fact, he had scientists I believe to even uh, to try to convince the uh, studios, hey, we need to do this because this does work you mm. know? Uh, he, he was not just a little uh you know, Star Trek uh, writer. This, this uh, Rottenberry and his assistants were phenomenal people. Mm, they had a good a point. Tremendous, tremendous amount of vision and what they expect to see the adventure to be, you know. Because, you know, Star Wars is more like his battles and all. But it, it, Star Trek was finding oneself, you know, to go beyond, you know. Good when point. An no old man has never been gone before. And that's what the, it was all about the journey. It was not just about, you know. Yeah, you know, the ships and, and a war going on. There was not no mm. war going on. This is a good whole point. different story. That's you know? right. And it, was, I think, that was a challenge that he had to convey that. What do you think
2: about the challenges of movie making?
4: In, what's, in what sense? In, mean, in in the, the
2: time of Rottenberry, nineteen eighty uh, movie, nineteen seventy nine, making a sci fi yeah, yeah, budget Yeah, because you know,
4: you know, as well as you know, even the early days of Desilu production that started all this. Uh, and uh, to Paramount, you know, to finally get to, uh, again, going back to that history, they felt that it was, not, it was a, a, a child's show. Uh, uh, the ability, to, I mean, we have one, and the beautiful part of it, they had great actors, mm. uh, serious people involved in Star Trek. Uh, in Star Trek. Um, and I think uh, the challenges were, is how do we make it uh, better than it was before? You that's, know, that's the, right the, the, from the the uh, TV version that's right to the, to, to the big screen again oh, good point you know so uh, I, I think yeah, they uh, they uh, were're not prepared for this. You know, especially when they offer, uh, they they offer one to two million dollars to do the production. That's you right. know. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. The, the, the pocket change. Pocket right? change they they started know, with pocket yeah, change. You know, before and you had great serious. actors. You had Shackner and Nimoy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you have, these are these are awesome actors. Uh, how are you going to ask them to come aboard with such? You know, no, no, no. The no. point. Uh, they, uh, they, that, they had to rethink this, and I'm right, glad that, they
2: did. That, 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 that's good. Uh, you know, you're right. You, hit, Robert, hit a, a good one about. The Should I said the evolution of the film from when it went from TV to they were thinking how do they adapt it to the big screen you know what changes do they have to make. So Roddenberry in his article talked about Star Wars versus Star Trek and he had seen Star Wars no less than four times. So I'm asking you Robert which is better? Star Trek versus Star Wars, and and what's the
4: difference, or is there a difference? Uh, there is a, a tremendous amount of difference. Um, the, the Star Wars is a, uh, brings you to a time and space where, and there was a battle going on, uh, whereas, um, you know, we uh, in, in Star Trek, there, that, there, this is an opportunity for adventure. We just got through a, a tremendous World War Three, meeting with the Vulcans and developing warp speed. Oh, you know, it was right. like Good it, point. It, Good point. It, it was a time where. They, they wanted to reach out you know and find meaning for mankind mm. and to, the only way you can do it is get to the stars you know good point good point you're
2: right you're right. So it leads us to our next question Where did you first see Star Trek the motion picture and and what are your movie going
4: memories that you can uh, recall? Well it, it came out in 1979 mm-hmm. uh, in uh, debut on December. Right. And I don't remember exactly where whether I saw it in December or I saw it in January. Wow. I do remember it was very cold. Whoa. And uh, there were lines around the block. Whoa! Okay? <laughs> yeah. uh, to get to see this movie. Okay. Um, and I have to believe I saw it in Manhattan. So it okay. was lines to get in there. It was like I was in total awe. Because uh, I remember when Star Trek came out in the 60s, I was a teenager. You know, I was so... Um, of overcome by. In fact, they when they started making toys. Remember, you know. Yes. Remember? Oh, yes, 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 that's right. The uh, <laughs> you know? the, star, the the big lineup of Star
2: uh, star, Trek, star Wars. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the toys. toys. Yes, you know, all you know? the toys and coming and out. The packages. Know, I, I never that.
4: asked my parents for anything, right? But when I asked them for that, they went out to the store and got her for me. You know, wow. they were so enthusiastic about me so knowing more, more about the stars.
2: So. That's right, and and I, I remember the uh, didn't McDonald's come out with a line of uh, <laughs> yes. well, happy meals with the Star Trek the motion picture mm-hmm. right uh, yes. right I mean they I remember that lineup I mean you had to have your happy meal so you could look at the pictures and right all the graphics and everything so that that was a fun thing so it's uh... so when you saw the movie when you sat down for the first time what what, what were your initial impressions when you first saw it.
4: Well, uh, the, the first thing is the big screen. Okay. Uh, There's nothing like it, you know. All right. You know, even today we have flat screen celebration. That's right. Movie, but it's not the same kind of feeling when you go to a movie theater. I was totally in awe. I remember being, looking at it, and I have seen the, the crew coming along. They look vibrant. They look strong. They look great in the uniforms. You know, they this, did, didn't did. It was like a new life. It's a new beginning. You know, wow. And I said yeah, this, this a... is Roddenberry's dream to show this new beginning. That's right. Uh, I was, a, I was definitely overtaken by it. Oh, you know, an R. That that's
2: good yeah yeah especially after seeing it in the boob tube and then all of a sudden you're seeing it in the big, big screen. screen it's yes. like whoa yes. and then uh, um, these new costumes right uh, a new ship right mm-hmm. a new design of the ship new mm-hmm. costumes and, and how about uh, meeting each other for the first time when they're coming aboard after yes, many many years i right?
4: seen the, you know this, uh, I could see there, uh, uh, the belief in the system you, know, you, you can't you can't fake that the acting was genuine you know the whole crew. You know, mm. genuine um, acting. It was just, it was just, some, uh, uh, it was. I would definitely I say I was taken, uh, and I was total awe about it. I couldn't wait to see it again. So uh, after the movie, uh,
2: did you have any thoughts like how you would have made the movie differently, or were you just impressed with how it
4: was uh, when they uh, put it out? It's it's hard to think about that because you know, like an armchair kind of attitude about how it oh, always yeah. done changes. You know. I honestly believe the movie was designed the way it was it was, it was catered to a, a sequel coming. Yes, um, you know, see and you yes, know that's unfortunate, right. you know, Rod was, you know, asked to leave, you know, uh because they didn't want him involved in the set. Oh yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I that's mean, like, you that, know, that, that, he had the director that's, that's, Robert, that's Wy- right. Wy- Robert Wise. Robert, Robert. Wise, yes, it was, that's it was right. Phenomenal. He passed away, uh but he's uh he was a great actor. Uh, I mean, a great director, excuse me. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and they both collectively trying to work together and keep, trying to keep the vision the dream of making the motion picture. Um, of course, Rod and Betty had a different focus uh, on what he would love to see, wanted to grow with it, you know, and, and its characters. But, um, yeah, I, I no, I wouldn't change anything, because basically it's hard to say uh, after you've seen a movie, uh, that, yeah, you can retake this. No, it had to be the way it was. Oh, okay, great, great. Yeah, it's. Uh, so, do you think it? Roddenberry
2: talks in the article about Hollywood. So, my question to you, Robert, is: Do you think Hollywood understands science fiction? Um,
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say that's yeah. a loaded question. Yeah, I know. That's, yeah, that's definitely. Uh, let's put it this way: uh, Today, they do. Today, they know. Uh, if you see on. Uh, uh, Streaming channels—you could purchase these channels. You watch uh, you know, excerpts of Star Star Trek all over the place. Next generation—I mean, all over the place. And these are just, uh, yeah, they didn't see it then, but now they know. Understand it now. I mean, they kicked themselves in the butt for canceling uh, Star Trek after how many seasons they had?
2: Oh, just three. Yeah, three Three seasons. seasons. Yeah, know
4: and you know and then when when they when they started re-showing over and over on television the people the you know, new generation of young people started seeing it so, that's right know, a new generation yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just like you know and you know the uh, you know but they they understood what they had you know um, and now they of course you know yeah Hollywood at that time was uh, uh, when it comes to sci-fi uh you remember the old days of sci fis You know oh. the creature of the black goo. Oh yeah, yeah. You
2: still love that. He's talking ladies and gentlemen about the uh the what do you call it? the the B movies, right? The the, movies, they yeah. call them the B movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Monsters, ghouls, yes, yes, uh robots, mm-hmm. yes, uh, yes. Creatures, creatures, you know, it's so, a, yeah.
4: So you can understand Hollywood ah, at the time right. that's where they saw, you know, the sci-fi uh mission, you know, the mission of make put in and film. Um uh, I believe they uh, they they could have improved a little bit in the early days, but you know, like I said earlier, it it you know you, you just can't see uh, you can't say it now. I mean, you have an mm, opinion, but right. the movie is the way it was. It was just you know uh, it was phenomenal. I tell you, uh, nothing really keeps me in awe except that movie in you know, mm. the beginning, and I was hungry for more. I wanted to see more. Oh yeah, their yeah. hunger. Ah, hunger.
2: Yeah, yes, like it. like nature's <laughs> Nature hunger. There hunger, you go. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, hungry for more. Like, yeah. do you think Roddenberry fed an appetite, oh, a sure. sci-fi
4: appetite? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, to this very day. They're just what about the new generation growing up today as well? They see this. That's you right. Know, they uh, and then you know you know warp drive. You know that's that's wow. no longer sci-fi. You know. Uh, scientists in NASA are even talking about warp drive you know it's a, you know uh of course they change the design of the ships you know they think well this will work better but warp drive is something that will happen wow yeah just 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 yeah just it, the entire so you know? fascinating, yeah. Yes. The, you know, so whatever was sci fi now is becoming reality, yeah. Can that's right. We talk right. about, you know, the, the, the uh, early kick kick the on the communicators, yes, yes, okay. yeah. Communicate, <laughs> yeah. Look, at, and then look now, you got cell phones, yeah, cell phones right? That's oh yeah. my
2: god, that's yes. a, so.
4: so. Someone said by hey, look, I wonder if we can make something that small to communicate.
2: Mm. Look at
4: today, you're right,
2: good point. Uh, do you think that Hollywood saw the Star Trek? As a cash cow for a quick buck.
4: Yes, that's what they're hoping for because they spend forty-four million dollars, and they were unhappy. They collected yeah. worldwide, you and go. you know, only one hundred thirty-nine million. And I'm thinking, only one hundred thirty-nine million at that time period. You know, uh, that's you know, uh, that's a whole lot of money. Yeah, know, for, for
2: back then, back yeah.
4: then, you know. Yeah. But they were hoping to two hundred, three hundred, you know, you know million dollars. You know, that would have been great. But uh, I believe the presentation of the movie uh, could have done justice to that, you know, because it, it didn't, um, you know, when they say we're worldwide outlets, like, so I just think they didn't do a good job, hmm. you know, they could, they could yeah. increase if they'd done a better job in presenting uh, the motion picture as it is. But, you know, again... Yeah. Again, I, was, I mean, uh, you know, $139 million is nothing to laugh at, you know? considering yeah, it was, they, yeah. You know, think about it, They spend 44 so they make it a well, little <laughs> yeah, less than that's right. million. Yeah, that's Gee whiz, yeah, $100 that's, million. Dollars. Yeah, for Gee, his that's, first... Yeah, that's, wow. Wow. I mean, you know, and this is just, you know... And, and they came up with a lot of technologies from that. You yes, know, they so did. They, yeah, you're right. The you know, like lenses development had to be made to make the wow. movie, you know? Wow. And, yep, you know, they had the extras... That were in the movie. I remember that. They, yeah, the, they the were all
2: fans. Yes, yes, that's right. The extras in, in Star Trek: The Motion Picture mm-hmm. were fellow fans. fans. Good point. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, I, I bet people would give anything just to be a right, be a background extra in Star Trek: Hello? The Motion Picture. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put me in a uniform, stick me in the back. I I'll be care. so happy. Yeah, yeah you I, got it. Would, yeah, definitely. I mean, good. wow. Yeah, yeah, Just uh, yeah. history in the making. Do you have any closing thoughts or comments? Well, um, in
4: in 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 Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, both awesome films, and to this very day, new stories are developing in constantly. You know, virtual reality, all that. You know, it's continuing to 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 search out. You know, the meaning of who we are Hmm. as 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 a good point. You know, to to grow and develop because you see the saga. This is this is all about human. Interaction. Ah,
7: yeah, good Star Trek. point. Good point. Yes. Star Trek is yeah, human, human interaction. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Star
4: Wars is like, okay, this is what it could be, and this is wonderful, and it's great, and they're both good movies, you know, but that's set up at a different time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it kind of is. It,
2: do you see, like, uh, uh, one being more like a fairy tale, and the other one being more like sci-fi, or do, or, uh, or, or are we talking apples and oranges
4: here? You know, yeah, like, uh, yeah, apple and oranges. You oh, know, they both have yeah. significant equal amount of great human stories. But Star Trek is more like Earth Bond. You know, Earth, yeah, good points. You know? Yeah, you know, I didn't think about that. You're right. Where the other
2: one is once upon a time upon in a, a, a galaxy you know, gal- far, far, far away, far away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, which is great. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, but yes, but you're
2: right. I, I, yeah, that's what I was saying. You know, the the fairy tale versus sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned the Earth part. Yeah, you yeah. know, because now wait, wait, wait. Uh, Star Trek is Earth. Earth you know, yeah. and people exploring. You that's know, right, where 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 Star Wars is like people fighting. Right, the evil empire. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, Right, the Darth Vaders or the Mm -hmm. the Vaders or whatever they whatever whatever whatever
4: the evil ones are, you know. (laughs) And and I enjoy it. I enjoy enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, same here. I mean, they spend a tremendous. Disney spent a lot of money, and it's wonderful. You know, they own the rights to it. That's fantastic. You know, Um, but it all started, you know, in in the early seventies. You know, that was that, 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 and just grew yes you know? yes it's, just, it's, it's amazing i remember taking my nephews and nieces with the little ones to see star wars yes okay? yes they were like totally excited uh, you know and i tried to take them to see star trek but they were like they weren't they didn't understand star trek you know you know i uh, yes, yes. said it was young still you know but again the, these are two uh, quality films i mean awesome uh, franchises, if you want to call them. You know. uh-huh. But you know. But getting back to, you know, not to lose... Yes, us, yes. Getting, uh, At least we... The, our story begins on Earth. Yes, that's a good know. point. It tells a story Correct. where mankind went through a third war, three, okay, total devastation and all of a sudden got together you know, and someone decided, hey, let me try making Warp Drive to see how right. fast we can travel to the next star. And that's how we got uh, connected with the with Vulcan. With the Vulcans, right. you know, we we're like they we recognize our signature, you know. Oh yeah, I, good I, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I fi- saw Yeah, the Vulcans, Yeah, yeah, finding Earth. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and, and we, were, we were so eager, but yeah. we we're so young, right? We were still babies, and, and, and thinking about at that time. Yeah, were, the the finding Earth. We 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 know we don't know what's yeah. out there, you know. Uh, then May greet us with open hands, or so they want to eat us. Uh, <laughs> that's a good point, right? Yeah. We don't yeah. know.
2: Uh, that's right, because no aliens have have landed on. Planet Earth yet. That's
4: no, I haven't no, seen no, that. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, like uh to quote Elon Musk, uh, he says, Well, I haven't seen any yet. You know, where are they? <laughs> wow. You know, Elon yeah, Musk, of course, you know. Yes. And he says, Where are they? have they landed here? Where are they? Wow. Who are they? Why are mm. they gonna come out and talk to us? You know, this is he's pointing out if they were here we would know. Ah, yeah. Okay? Good point. Good point. You know, although, unless they hide behind the curtain, you know, like in um uh, the Wizard of Oz. You ah, know, good point. You know, who knows? You know, and that's a whole different story altogether.
2: Oh, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, we have a uh, film coming out before the end of the year and uh my good friend Robert Lopez uh plays Commander Roddy like <laughs> yes. you've never seen him before and we have very we have some great drama scenes and very comical scenes that I think you'll enjoy you know if you gra- grab a, a big drink and a, a tub of popcorn and enjoy it but uh yeah we're going to produce our, our next film yes. it's called uh Fighting Chance and it's coming out before the end of the year and, and I okay. play uh Captain Ramsey's of uh, the Ramsay. starship Crusader, Crusader so yeah. we We hope that you'll join us, and uh, you'll watch it, and you'll have a barrel full of fun.
1: All right, as always, we're going to close this episode by discussing one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This one says, Wanted, these three new collector's items from Bantam. And it's a book produced by Eric Stedman, about intergalactic creatures and criminals, another book by Frank Frazetta, his artwork, and here's the one that's interesting to Star Trek fans, entitled Star Trek Maps by New Eye Photography, $8.95. These four fabulous 29 by 41 full-color maps of the Starship Enterprise's five-year mission through the universe are absolutely accurate and come complete, with a 32-page navigational guide to comprise the highest quality package ever made available to Trekkies. So we have that in our collection, and we're going to talk about it. So it actually comes in a folder saying Star Trek maps, navigational charts, based on the award-winning television series created by Gene Roddenberry. It's copyright 1980. I think it's interesting that when you look at the cover... It's actually, it it looks like an AMT model kit that is almost amateurishly painted.
0: So you you can tell it's the the original Enterprise. You're just looking at the picture of the ship. I mean, it still looks nice.
1: What I think that's kind of strange about this is the fact that this is the motion picture error. You figure they would use a model of the refit, not of the original series. So I think they didn't do a great job. Of cross promoting the motion picture.
0: Yeah, this was probably produced before that. I'm assuming it was probably several years in the making, and then they and that was what they had done. That was good point. What they had.
1: Also, it notes on the back that it has Klingon and Romulan neutral zones, alien and allied vessels, star systems, planets, and other worlds. So, if you're a collector looking for this on the secondary market, you'll find two large maps make sure that it has the booklet included entitled Introduction to Navigation, Starfleet Command Technical Publications Section. This is what brings out the reality and it makes you feel like these are actual maps that you can study and find these actual planets on because it tells you how to coordinate geometry, how to look at things not only in two dimensions but three dimensions, looking at the Y, X, and Z planes, how to coordinate the chart symbology, and astrogation maps. So when you look at this map, what do you admire mostly about it?
0: That it has all the, the systems that were on Star Trek. And, and I like how they, they actually used the map that was used in Balance of Terror to show the Romulan Star Empire. So that was cool that they included that.
1: Yeah, and it's the same coloring system that they used in Balance of Terror.
0: Yeah, it looks like they, they use the same thing, the same map, picture. And it shows the Klingon Empire. And I like that they use the colors, too. It's color-coded, so you can kind of make out different things in it more easily. And it even has a cutout of um, of other systems. Close-ups of, the, of course, the Sol system, Talus, Triskelion. I mean, it's it's pretty detailed.
1: And showing the relation, once you go back and forth between the navigation... Booklet and the map, you're able to see the distance on all axes of different planets and different systems. Like it shows you how far Sharon was out in comparison to other planets, and it even has outlines of the Enterprise's normal patrol route.
0: So there, there's also a section on it called Interesting Worlds, where it shows just a close up of what the planets look like from from um, like if you're if you're orbiting the planets. It shows Vulcan. Babel, Talis 4, Organia, Yonada, even Sherman's planet, which was never shown on the show.
1: And it shows, has a chart shows, the different sizes of the planets in relation to one another.
0: Yeah, so you can see that Vulcan was a lot bigger than Earth, for example. And see, it is great seeing the different colors of the planets, just to see how they looked. And, and having Yonada on here, which wasn't really a planet, but that, the one that looks like an asteroid on the outside... I mean, on Star Trek, the original series, they didn't have stellar cartography, which would have been neat to show something like this. They had that big room, and to be able to use holograms to see it. So, you know, back in 1980, we just had this map to look at.
1: Yeah, highly recommend Star Trek fans of this era, late 70s, early 80s, pick up a copy of, of the Star Trek maps and Navigation Guide.
0: Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.